It's time for the Rose Chat Podcast, a podcast dedicated to celebrating the world's most beloved flower, the rose. Join award-winning gardeners Chris Van Cleef and Teresa Byington as they chat with rose lovers and experts from around the globe. With each episode, you'll gain valuable knowledge and insights to achieve the rose garden you've always dreamed of. Listen now as we explore the world of roses. Hey friends, I'm so excited today to have with me my good friend, David Slezak, to talk about a subject that many have questions about or are at least a bit confused about, and that's plant breeding and the history and the importance of plant patents. So David, welcome back to Rose Chat. Thank you so much, Teresa. It's so good to have you, but it's that time of year, winter. It's coming. <laughs> yeah, you, I, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling sad. The beautiful roses that that we've been enjoying, um, the cold has shut down the plants, and I just finished tucking away the potted roses for winter this this last weekend. So you're up in Wisconsin. It's definitely going to get cold there. You know, we keep hearing a lot about the zones changing and that kind of thing. And mine did change a little bit, but it's not going to change so much up in Wisconsin that you're not going to be covering roses, I'm thinking. Yeah, exactly. So I have uh, so many potted roses. And even though they might be some hardy varieties if they were in the ground, because they're in a pot, uh, that makes the roots a little bit more tender. Because when we have mm-hmm. soil elevated in a container, it becomes the same temperature as the air. When oh. when it's, they're planted in the ground, they have the buffer of the soil, and it just dips a little bit below freezing typically, even though the ground is solid. Uh, so protecting the potted roses um, up here is a big chore for gardeners that, that have roses in pots. So some people dig them into trenches, put them into insulated garages. Um, I have... I have thousands of roses, way too many. I lose track of how many. And so I've been using construction blankets. Um, and that that's really, you know, been a game changer. So I, I put all the pots, pot on pot, uh, together, just sitting on the soil. And then um, I make a, a comforter. So I put a tarp down first to protect uh, the insulation blankets from the thorns. And then I have these concrete insulation blankets used in construction, high R values. They're they're lightweight, they're bulky, uh, six by 25 feet, about an inch thick. And then I layer them over um, the, the tarp. And then I put an outer tarp over everything that covers the, the whole pile and weigh it down with concrete blocks around the edges. I use a little bit of rodent paint under there and that that's just been amazing. They come through perfectly and I don't have all those leaves and other things to get rid of in the spring. Oh my goodness. Oh, that, I can't imagine what a huge tour the leaves would have been. Yeah. I, about a decade ago, I, I started doing it this way. I was inspired by um, Deb Kaiser up at uh, the St. Cloud garden up there at Virginia Clemens Rose Garden in St. Cloud, mm-hmm. Minnesota. And she uses construction blankets actually over the beds of tender hybrid teas. And a lot of Rose Society members, especially as we're getting older, it's it's hard to winterize all, all our tender beloved roses. So a lot of Rose Society members are using these blankets not only for their pots, but growing their tender roses in a confined bed and then covering it over with these blankets. 
Wow. I mean, that would work. That would probably work here if you had um, things in containers. I don't. I have had in the past, but, you know, I just brought them into the garage and that kind of thing. But, boy, if you had a lot, that would be such an, an easier fix for that. You know, people do try to bury them and all kinds of things. But, but uh, I can see the benefit of that for sure, even on a small scale. It's great. Yeah, it, it allowed me to expand beyond what I should. <laughs> you did say thousands, didn't you? I did. I keep propagating <laughs> oodles by cuttings and having more for research projects, um, new seedlings, parents that I cross on to. So it's it's been wonderful. Oh, and we appreciate what you do because it brings us so many beautiful roses. It brings us so. And let's talk about roses. Let's talk about plant breeding and patents. And I think you're the perfect person to talk about this as your breeding program has bought so many beautiful roses. Things like Petite Pink, Easy Peasy, the Sweet Pretty Poly Series, the Magnificent Above and Beyond, which I just cannot wait to see it bloom again in my garden and that's just naming a few I mean do you know how many you don't know how many roses you have but do you know how many patterns you have um all together it's mainly roses a few other plants like nine barks and heliopsis are 16 all together and what one that'll um, be published really soon to make it 17 Oh, man. Well done. Bravo, bravo. Thank you so much for your hard work. So I think this is a subject that many people are either they're in the dark about or they're confused about. So, Professor, take us back um, in time and give us a history lesson on planned patents. How did it all get started? Oh, my pleasure. Uh, So in the United States, uh, patent laws went into effect you know, many, many decades ago to help innovators be able to incentivize their efforts and resources being um, devoted towards innovation. And uh, for design patents, there's different categories of patents. Uh, people that come up with something innovative, unique, were able to uh, describe that particular innovation and apply Uh, for a patent. So they describe it as fully as possible, what makes it unique, different, what are the unique claims or qualities that make their innovation different than what has been done before. And then if approved, that allows that person, the inventor, and or the company that they work for, that the inventor assigns the patent to, to have control over who accesses and is able to utilize that innovation for a period of time. So during that period of time uh, that the innovator has control over the use of that innovation, um, they, they typically want others to use it and they want to license it and have others benefit. And as part of that, uh, typically there's some sort of royalty that's part of it. So uh, whoever is utilizing it um, has an agreed upon um, amount of money or royalty, so many cents per individual copy or unit of that innovation that goes out. So um, then the inventor is able to recoup some of the, the costs that went into developing that innovation and then be able to continue to build their capacity to innovate more. So ultimately, uh, the goal is that it'll spur on more than enough innovation to more than cover 
the costs that people are, are paying to utilize these innovations and it would help spur on the economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These things take time and resources, lots of time and lots of resources. They do. Yeah. To work out all the bugs as people um, step by step work towards, you know, something wonderful that, that works smoothly to benefit society um, bit by bit testing and retesting and innovating some more. So in 1930 is when uh, the United States Plant Patent Act uh, came, came out. So it, it allowed breeders of plants to be able to participate in this patenting system. And in the mid-1800s especially, and it intensified into the late 1800s, people were making controlled crosses with plants, coming up with uh, new varieties. There was a lot of excitement as different species of plants, in particular roses, were shared across continents. Mm -hmm. Uh, Repeat blooming um, specimens became shared even more out of, out of Asia into Europe, United States, and people crossing lots of different plants of different backgrounds to, to see what great advances could be made. So um, by 1930, a few to several decades after controlled pollinations and in much more strategic efforts towards plant breeding began, um, there, there was enough of a um, impetus that um, that led to the the idea of patenting new plants. So the Plant Patent Act allowed for a breeder to um, have intellectual property of that unique genotype, that unique plant, mm-hmm. as it's um, propagated through cuttings or grafting, so it's clonally propagated. Since then, there are other kinds of patents that that help with seed-propagated crops like wheat or soybeans. But in 1930, that Plant Patent Act um, first came out being applied to uh, plants that are clonally propagated, including roses, different fruits, where through cuttings, uh, we'd get a duplicate that's genetically the same as the original plant to be able to have that consistency uh, for the consumer. So in order for a plant to get patented, uh, there are a few criteria that need to be met. And that includes that the plant arose in cultivation, so it wasn't just found in the wild, and that it can be clonally propagated through cuttings, grafting, and have the characteristics that set it apart be true to type. So uh, it'd be predictable to to have those key characteristics from plant to plant. Um, And then in addition, um, that that innovation uh, can't be disclosed or shared for more than a year by the time the application goes in. So if they wait more than a year, then they lose the opportunity to patent Mm -hmm. their plant. Uh, The very first plant that got a U.S. plant patent in 1930 was the famous climbing rose, New Dawn. So roses have a very close connection with the whole plant patent system, not only for the very first plant that was ever patented in the United States, but also um, roses have more patents than any other species of plant within the plant patent system. Isn't it just wonderful that it was a rose first? (laughs) 
Yeah, it's such a great one that people still love and grow today. Oh, yes. It is just stunning. It is just stunning. I was in Little Rock, Arkansas a few years ago, and it is a beautiful um, town and um, lots of fences, lots of beautiful properties and new Don Roses everywhere. And just I happened to be there when they were in bloom. It was spectacular. So pretty. Yeah, a special for sure. A special was for sure. And there's lots of special stories. Now you have a special story about how Rose Icon Francis Mayon first got involved too. Yeah. Um, so it, it's been uh, just inspirational over the years here, uh, getting to know Alan Mian, his son, and and recognize the fullness of, of that story. So so in 1930, that Plant Patent Act uh, went into effect and and then that spurred on a lot more breeding so as as different people recognize that um that there could be an incentive to invest more in plant development and plant breeding different rose nurseries uh, began to develop their own exclusive varieties and in order to to get a patent it doesn't necessarily mean that a new plant has to be better but just different and then the other criteria that we just shared. So um, a lot of different companies were involved in in rose development, which was great for rose gardeners to have even more um, options available as the years went by. So Francis Amand is a young man in his early 20s. He came to visit in the United States and visited the Conard Pile Company, uh, known probably more widely today as star roses and plants. And Francis was inspired by uh, the U.S. plant patent system. And of course, that that began the the wonderful, uh, very long relationship between uh, Mayand mm-hmm. International, Mayand Roses, and the Star Roses and Plants Company. And Francis, inspired by the U.S. plant patent system, as he went back to Europe, he was a, a key person that that initiated the work and set the stage for what became known today as um, European plant breeder rights. So the European Union, the European system, has their own version of plant patents um, as plant breeder rights. And as the years have gone by, what different uh, voices amongst the breeders there there's slight differences in terms of how things are patented, how long patents last, uh, but it's, it's very similar. So these plant patent systems are unique to different geographical regions of the world. Uh, so, for instance, um, today for Mayan International, uh, they'll, they'll seek European plant breeder rights on a new variety that they're releasing in Europe. And then as that same variety gets released in the United States, in order for, mm. for it to have protection, it'll have to get a United States plant patent to Australian plant breeder rights in China, Japan, different parts of the world. So so Francis Mayand set the stage and led the way with yeah. European plant breeder rights. Such a beautiful story. And just knowing the timing, it's 1935 when he comes and then... He's going to go back home and lots of things are going to change. <laughs> Our world is going to change. But yeah. he did get that cross 
back across the pond that led to the Peace Rose. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's so when, just amazing. Yeah, he came home after that visit in 1935, and and that's when he made the pollination for peace, and and there's just a wonderful continuance of that story. So as he recognized that peace was a very special rose, um, the hybrid teas were were kind of waning in popularity um, a little bit by that that point, and and peace um, with its vigor, its beautiful flowers. It was a step above the hybrid teas mm-hmm. of that time. And he shared a piece, got it sent out to different collaborators, friends around the world. And as they lost um, communication during World War II, um, people recognized how special it was. And and then it um, earned an All-America Rose Selection Award uh, for 1945, in the United States, and then a U.S. plant patent um, in the United States really set the stage for those royalties uh, for peace to be able to get shared, sent uh, to the Mayan family eventually, and it, it helped the company rebuild after the war and was just so instrumental uh, during that difficult time that um, led and allowed Mayan International to be the the strong, wonderful company that it remains today. It's a beautiful story, and it's a story that's been made into a children's book, and I think the title is A Rose Called Peace, and um, there's so many great writings about it, but this children's book is a big, beautiful book about this rose, and it shows, you know, that the rose fields were burned, and just all of the things that happened, and then all of the beautiful things that it led to. So it's just a great, great story that we can all just um, participate in and be proud of. And just the naming of the Rose Peace at such a time in our world is just so special. Yeah. So um, taking a a step uh, back a little bit into the 1930s. So after the, the Plant Patent Act uh, came through, um, these different rose nurseries, especially uh, invested in innovation. So a number of them began rose breeding programs and and part of it was to have exclusive roses. Before that point, if somebody invested in, in breeding using some field space, time, greenhouse space, that wasn't necessarily going to be profitable in the moment as they invested in innovation. Um, as somebody came up with a new rose and, and started selling it, there was nothing to prevent their competitor from down the road to mm. get a plant of it and start propagating and selling it too. Mm. So with the Plant Patent Act, um, that, that allowed these nurseries to exclusively um, be the place to get some of these new roses, and they didn't necessarily have to license it to other people. And the market started to become flooded with uh, new roses and marketers for each of the different companies were sharing, you know, this rose is the greatest and you could only get it, of course, at our nursery. And that led to the beginning of all America rose selections. So uh, different industry members recognized we needed a way to be able to identify the roses that are well above average Mm -hmm. across the whole nation as nurseries sold their roses across the country. So in 1938, 
a number of industry members banded together to create this national rose trialing program um, known as All-America Rose Selections. And then the first winning roses um, came out in 1940, two years after that, after uh, the first trial period. Uh, so plant patents spurred on lots of innovation. And then also after that spurred on independent plant trials to be able to, to sort through all the amazing new plants to test them more thoroughly uh, to help um, inform consumers across the nation in terms of what's the best of the best. That is such a gift. And all of the trials that we have now, um, there, it's just such a gift to see that, to know that regionally uh, it's been tested. Uh, just it makes our decision so much, so much easier. We can be carefree about our decision because someone else is doing all of this hard work of testing. And I just love that. I love that the programs that we have in place now just working very hard and they're given a specific information about not only our region, but but fragrance or um, disease resistance or water, uh, water-wise, that they they are um, drought resistant. I mean, these things are so wonderful for the home gardener to make their decisions. Yeah, it's a labor of love. So the, mm-hmm. these trials, for the most part, many of them are run by volunteers. The the modest entry fees don't cover the costs of of doing all this work. So these independent trials, um, so University of California, Davis does uh, low low water trials. And of course there's the American Rose Trials for Sustainability, um, Award of Excellence for Miniature Roses, American Garden Rose Selection Trials in the United States. Um, So these these nurseries and breeders, uh, they're, they're working in a particular location and they don't necessarily have access to have their plants planted out all across the nation themselves. So, so they utilize these wonderful trials to help bring in that information. And then consumers, it helps us a lot because um, these, these trials give us information about those roses that we just can't see at the nursery as we look at that beautiful plant in front of us knowing, (laughs) are you drought tolerant? Are you disease resistant? They look beautiful at the moment. They just hop right in our carts. But um, these trials give that information to us to help us make the connection to find those roses that are most adapted to our gardens. Oh, absolutely. I just love that. Now, um, what, how many plant trials do we have um, going on right now that you can think of? Um, there, there's trials beyond roses, um, but for for roses, it's mainly um, for for the national trials, um, the American Rose Trials for Sustainability, American Garden Rose Selections, and then the American Rose Society hosts the Award of Excellence for Miniature Roses. Mm-hmm. So those are the three national ones. And then besides that, there's the specialty trials for drought tolerance there at University of California, Davis. Um, some industry partners, for instance, the Synergy Group in the, the northeast part of the United States, they have that hand-picked for you um, sub-brand that, that yeah. they do. And they they uh, have some trials at their member nurseries there in the northeast. Um, but, but mainly these national trials um, – are 
are the the, the strongest um, trials uh, for us as gardeners, especially the um, arts trials, American Rose Trials for Sustainability and AGRS, uh, because then they, they award um, their awards on a regional basis. Mm-hmm. So you could recognize what region do I live in? What are the roses that have won in my locality? And that makes such a difference. And America is so vast, you know, here in, in Indiana is a lot different than in Wisconsin and a lot, lot different than Florida and California. I mean, it's just, it's not a one size fit all. So this is just very, very valuable to us. One of my favorite quotes about this kind of thing was Jacques um, Farrar of Star Roses and Plants. And he said, that they did, uh, they had rose hell, and they they like to think that they would send roses to hell, and we didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> so they just put them out there to see what what they could do, and they didn't get very much water and very little care. And so, so many of these programs have just brought us beautiful things to our garden, and we certainly are appreciative of that. The work, and as you said, many many uh, much of this work is done by volunteers. So we certainly appreciate it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And so All America Rose Selection, as as we know, uh, disbanded in 2012. So un- unfortunately, with it being industry led and a number of industry members going out of business with the downturn in the economy just before mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Um, that allowed or led to. All American Rose Selections being disbanded, but but fortunately, uh, the American Rose Trials for Sustainability, and I'm mm-hmm. part of that, we're able to pull together enough resources and have people representing uh, industry, um, university scientists, uh, public garden specialists, American Rose Society members to to have a, a broader foundation to these trials. So, as one sector a stakeholder might struggle a bit due to the economy or other reasons uh hopefully we'll be able to keep these these trials going and so i'm really grateful that we're able to get uh, arts off the ground and agrs too oh yes it's so so valuable so let's talk about how long a patent lasts i know there's some confusion about that information so um how long do they last yeah, great question. Um, so originally, they lasted 17 years. And then after they expired, anybody can clonally propagate uh, that rose, cuttings, grafting. And then in 1998, the the duration got extended to 20 years. So it's 20 years uh, past the filing date. So uh, somebody would, would write their patent, fill out the associated form, send it in. And when the United States Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO, got that letter and got it in their system, that constituted the filing date. And then um, that started that clock ticking uh, for 20 years. Now, this, um, I'm just hearing a lot of buzz today about rose hybridizing and cuttings. People are very excited about that. And a lot of our young gardeners and, uh, and people who've been gardening for years. I mean, it's just something it's fun to do. It's fun to learn about. It's something new to people. But I'm hearing things that lead me to believe there's a lot of confusion about you know, what a patent really means. Because I'm hearing people say things, well, like if I buy it, I can propagate for my own use or to give away. I just can't sell 
or um, I, I only propagate roses I get from the florist, or, well, I can propagate um, roses um, and, and, and give away as long as I don't make any money on it. So is any of that true or what is true? What are, you know, can you shed some light on those different scenarios that, that, I, that you know, we just commonly hear about this? Yeah, that's a great question, Teresa. Uh, so, so ultimately, it boils down to uh, the the patent holder having control over the asexual or clonal propagation of that plant in recent years here now for 20 years. And so unauthorized propagation is prohibited. So um, unless we have permission from that patent holder, um, you know, whatever we do to pretend that we authorized ourselves or somehow we deserve an exception, um, unfortunately, you know, isn't true. Um, so chances are that, you know, if we do take some cuttings just for ourselves and, and share some, uh, that that ultimately that that patent holder, you know, likely won't feel like it's worth the great expense to hire lawyers and, and sue that person. Um, but it just boils down to that, you know, unless we have permission from that patent holder, we don't have permission. And, um, you know, we're not legally propagating that plant. In the case of cut roses, that's a really great question. So it, it boils down to knowing what varieties that we do have and if there there is an active U.S. plant patent. And if there isn't, um, if the rose was never patented or if that patent has expired, uh, then uh, we we have full access to be able to to clonally asexually propagate that plant. Um, sales of that plant maybe there's a nuance to it. So trademarks are different than plant patents. So plant patents uh, cover the the clonal propagation of that mm-hmm. plant getting copies of it through cuttings or grafting. Um, but a trademark is the name by which that, that rose is sold. So for instance, now uh, the original knockout rose, um, and if we look in the small print, the variety name is Rad Raz. Uh, the patent has expired, so people can propagate it, make cuttings of it, but they they can't sell it under the name knockout unless they have permission of course from star roses and plants so they can propagate it they could call it rad raz they could sell it under rad raz or or come up with a a new name that's different Mm -hmm. um but so there's patents for propagation and then trademarks that that cover the the name that the that the plant is sold under if it's a common law or a registered trademark if there's a name in big print usually with either a TM or R with a circle near it, then we know that that's the, the trademark name. And then we could look in the small print for the variety name, which is usually in quotes, also called the cultivar name sometimes. And so there's that distinction that's sometimes a little tricky. Sometimes uh, we see, for instance, some of David Austin's earlier roses where the patent has expired being sold under that variety name like Ausblush. Um, for instance, so these these nurseries oh. are able to sell it 
but they're not using the the name heritage for instance because that's trademark so they're they're using that variety or or um cultivar name instead so um so that's so good to know. So good to know. There was a little fine line there, and I wasn't quite sure. That's just that's such good information. So that leads me to wonder. So if you're interested, this is something you want to do, and you want to, you know, uh, be a good steward of this. Where are you going to find the information about the patent? That's a great question, and sometimes it's really tricky. So, for instance, those cut roses, um, they they often don't even have the variety name. Uh, recently, I've seen the variety name uh, being presented a little bit more commonly. So uh, when, when you're buying a dozen roses, sometimes from some of the, the box stores, for instance, or some of those, those wholesale suppliers like Costco or Sam's Club, um, sometimes in that bundle of roses, you see the variety name and you could look it up and eventually um, find that match online, who, who's the breeder, who's the distributor, and, and see if they mention a plant patent number. Mm-hmm. So uh, ultimately, um, the best resource is going to the United States Patent and Trademark Office website. Um, a variation of that is in Google. If we type Google Patents, a, a new search engine comes up, Google Patents. And then in that search engine, what you would type is not the trademark name, but that variety or cultivar name. So for instance, for knockout, you type in rad raz and mm-hmm. and then you could get to that patent. It describes um, all the background of that, that plant and then also gives us that patent number. So if you have a patent number, plant patent number, let's say 30,512, um, in that Google patent search engine, um, you could just type in PP for plant patent, no space, and then 30,512, and then up comes that patent. You'll be able to see when it was filed, add 20 years to that. Um, you could you know, open up that patent as well. And then within that patent, it says how long that patent is good for. It has the final date. And then you'll know when it's safe to propagate it. Mm, such good information. Thank you so much, making that so easy for us. Now, you and I have been working on a project for since 2019. Yeah. And it resulted in something very special. Um, as everyone who knows me knows, one of my very favorite roses is Petite Pink. I have eight of them. I've had more than that at many times. I've given many away. It's just this beautiful, beautiful rose filled with blooms, sweetheart blooms. I just love it. It's so healthy. And it's your rose. And in 2019, I was given a gift. (laughs) A beautiful peach bloom. Several of them, actually. Um, A couple of canes. And um, I immediately contacted you and said, David, David, something is going on. And I've had many people ask me, are you a hybridizer? And I said, no, I am not. I found something beautiful, and it's a sport. So tell our listeners what I found. I'm so excited, Teresa, <laughs> that you found it, and you have your special rose, um, and it'll be so fun here. I'll, I'll let you share the, the variety name for it, because that's a wonderful connection, of course, to, to you and, and all that you do for, for us gardeners. Um, 
So, so finding that, that mutation, that branch on your petite pink plant, and I'm, I'm so ex happy that, that you like petite pink. And um, there was a branch that started to grow with a mutation that led to a reduced amount of a pigment that leads to pink anthocyanin. So then the warm background color came through to, to give blooms that were this gorgeous lighter peach color. And uh, the, the plant, that branch, grew just like petite pink for healthiness and good branching, tidy, rounded plant habit. And so I was so excited when you shared uh, the photograph of, of the sport. And, and then um, I, I encouraged how fun it would be to to propagate cuttings from that unique branch and get whole plants that are all all peach in terms of their blooms. And I remember that that fall it was late and and mm -hmm. the, the roses began to shut down a bit by that point. And and you shared a, a couple um, chunks or big branches of your plant, and it was no longer in bloom and. We weren't quite sure which branch <laughs> had the peach component, so I, I was able to make cuttings of those those two chunks of of branches, and and so fortunate that uh, one of them uh, housed that peach sport. So we're able to uh, have whole plants that just produce peach blooms, and and then propagate more from that, and then you were able to enter it into the award of excellence trials through the American Rose Society and the No Spray Division, get enough plants for that. And it won. So it's a winner uh, for this next year. So, so excited uh, for you. And then, of course, um, reach out to, to Matt um, Douglas there at High Country Roses. And he's the first person to, to be able to, to make it available for sale. And, and um, I'm, I'm helping um, propagate more plants for you to get to other nurseries and distributors to uh, see if they'd like to pick it up too. So, so very grateful for that. It is such a beautiful plant. If you like petite pink, you're going to love petite peach as well. It's the same. Um, it's the same bloom type. I go back and look at that picture of the two. Um, uh, before I sent to you, I had taken cuttings and um, the pink is all in the same shrub, but the pink and the peach together. And they were so similar in shape and form and all of that, but so different in color. And I can attest to how this just takes time. You start this process and you go down this road, but you have to see if the color holds and if the plant is stable and if it propagates well. And then the testing programs take years. So this is not, you know, just something that just happens and it's easy breezy. There's a lot to learn. And I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had you. I probably wouldn't be, um, um, I wouldn't have petite peach to um, sell to people. It's so beautiful. And one of the things that I've been hearing now, it's been in people's gardens long enough that I'm getting reports back and they just love it. And it's just so rewarding, but it does take time and it could, um, it could require a lawyer. I mean, there's just lots of things that people have to think about 
when you start down this road to bring something to market. So we didn't really talk about royalties and that kind of thing. And I, I think people probably think that that royalties are much more than they actually are for the work that you put into things. But talk a little bit about the royalty and then we'll go on and, and talk a little bit more about Petite Peach. Awesome. So, um, so, so the royalty, uh, typically with nurseries that I, I have some roses through and other plants such as Bailey Nursery, Star Roses and Plants, Plants Nouveau, um, Proven Winners, um, Typically, the royalty that goes to the breeder um, boils down to about one percent of the retail cost. So, um, so Uncle Sam with taxes, you know, gets more than the breeder does. So, so for instance, uh, for a five dollar annual that that you buy in a four inch pot, the the breeder typically gets five cents for um, a, a twenty five dollar rose. It's a quarter. Um, for a hundred dollar tree, it's about a dollar that ultimately the breeder gets. So as part of that royalty, uh, a lot of these, these nurseries, and, and this will be a good time to bring in the component of branding. Um, they, they have what they ultimately charge as their royalty and marketing fee. So then they'll, they'll put into that fee also, um, more sense to help cover their their marketing costs. So, for instance, um, a typical royalty and marketing fee that a, a nursery would charge um, um, as they sell, let's say, a rooted cutting to move on to a finishing nursery uh, might be about a dollar, a dollar fifty. It depends on the kind of plant. I'm thinking about shrubs here. Um, or roses. So maybe for roses, anywhere between 75 cents and um, to $1.50 um, in general. So ultimately, the breeder gets what we just talked about. But then beyond that, the introduction nursery takes a cut. And then they also uh, use, um, you know, some of that too, to help pay for ads and magazines, social media, their marketing professionals that work at the company to get the, the message out. So in recent years, um, branding has become such a key component of the horticulture industry and how plants get to us. Uh, the, the first really big plant that was an international um, success story in terms of branding applied to plants was flower carpet pink. So in the mid-1990s, Anthony Teslar from Australia connected with uh, Noak, a breeder in Germany that bred um, flower carpet pink, and had this idea of using branding approaches that were used for things like toothpaste and facial tissues and soda pop um, with plants. So instead of uh, the old-fashioned approach where um, maybe us as, as breeders, people finding sports of plants, find something cool, and we'll tap on the shoulder of our, our regional nursery su supplier like uh, Bailey Nurseries, for instance, or Monrovia, and say, would you have an interest in this plant? And then they'll look at, oh, maybe, and and then um, they'll propagate a little bit, and then they'll tap on the shoulders of, of their retail customers, um, so the garden centers that that ultimately buy from them to sell to the general public. 
oh, do you have an interest in this? And and then if they say yes, then eventually then those people tap on the shoulders of consumers. So lots of opportunity for things to be real slow and um, the pipeline to get bottlenecked. So instead, what did they do? They knew that they had a great rose. They tested it across uh, different climates. And then they jumped over all those middle people and they began putting ads out there in national magazines, being on Good Morning America, creating this buzz. And then as they did so, they shared that they were doing this with some nurseries and they they promised these nurseries, okay, you'll, you'll be the exclusive supplier for this part of the country. We're going to do all this marketing. You want to be on board? Okay, people have to come to you. And then the consumers will go to their local garden centers and say, do you have this rose that comes in this pink pot, flower <laughs> carpet pink? And if they didn't know it, they're going to learn about it soon. And they knew consumers um, had money burning a hole through their pocket and they wanted to buy it. And then that just really jump-started that whole supply chain. So today we have many different brands. So we have... Um, first editions, Easy Elegance Roses, Proven Winners, Garden Debut, that handpicked for you collection, Bloomin' Easy. We we have so many different brands now in the marketplace. And these brands want to have exclusive plants. So you're only going to find that unique, wonderful, new, innovative plant through them. So a plant patent is going to allow um for limitation of propagation. So if they have the license or given the permission from the breeder to be the only outlet to propagate that plant, then that'll give them the confidence then to invest Mm -hmm. the money for all that major marketing. So it's going to cost a whole lot more for that marketing than the price of a plant patent. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But patents and branding go hand in hand because it gives uh, those brands, the exclusive for that plant for that 20 year period. Um, and then of course they link in a, a trademark with it as well. Um, so all these different brands are actually benefiting consumers because these different brands want to have their own versions or varieties of our beloved favorite plants, roses, hydrangeas. So it brings a lot of diversity to us. Uh, Because they all have their unique varieties. And then uh, these national plant trialing programs will hopefully help us sort through what sometimes feels like Me Too varieties. Everybody wants to have a white hydrangea, red rose, or this or that. (laughs) But who is this the best? Yeah, yeah, it's such a good process, but it is a timely and a costly process. And so the protection of those who are going through this is just responsible. It's just a responsible thing to do. If someone's gone to the trouble and they have the trademark or they have the plant patent, that we want to honor that for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just, um, yeah, it, it's just the right thing to do. <laughs> let, let me let me share a little bit, Teresa, about how much a plant patent costs <laughs> and what goes into it. Um, so, as you're very familiar with, as we walk mm-hmm. through the process with Petite Peach, it was fun being a cheerleader and by your side through the process. Um, there's a number of forms that get filled out in terms of uh, the background of the, the plant and the, the variety name that you choose for it, where you found it. And then as part of it, there's a specification where in a very detailed way, 
we describe the botanical features of that plant, what makes it separate or different uh, from the other roses, what color is it, how large are the plant parts, what's unique about, for instance, the branching pattern and other aspects of the shape of the petals and all that. So we fill out those details. And when we do um, send it to the USPTO, there's a fee that goes along with it, an application fee. So after they, they receive uh, that application and they review it, which could take up to a year. Um, mm -hmm. re recently, it's been a little quicker, but sometimes a little more than a year. Then they'll get back to us with any edits that they need. And then there'll be a second fee, uh, the issue fee. Altogether, without any discounts, the overall fees for the government is about $2,200 and then they have a special incentive. Uh, so if you you make um, less than three times the median household income, um, then you can qualify for a small entity. And that, that's, that's where I'm qualifying these days. And so it costs about half that at about $1,200. And then if you qualify for small entity plus have less than five patents to date, uh, which you qualified for, then then you get it as a micro entity, which is about half of the small entity, so closer to about five to six hundred dollars. Um, so there's this tiered system based on how many patents you have and um, how how wealthy you are as an individual or a company. Um, so if a person doesn't want to pursue writing the patent themselves. It, it's a big learning curve to get all that botanical information and how to do it. Actually, Harvey Davidson is the one that encouraged me to have the courage to uh, apply for my own plant patents. He's known for, he passed away unfortunately, but he was in California and he's known for the, the Smooth Touch series of Thornless Roses. And he was an amazing character and uh, just devoted himself to these wonderful hybrid teas, floribundas, uh, that were thornless. And so he encouraged me to um, begin the process. So either the plant breeder or a licensed patent attorney can submit the information to the USPTO. There's so many details, but then you get to the good stuff <laughs> and you you see your plants and gardens. And in my case, last uh, June, I found out that Petite Peach was the winner of the American Rose Society Award of Excellence and in the no spray division. So, um, my goodness, it was like, you know, my child was on stage and there was pictures mm -hmm. and, you know, photographers and it was so fun. So this has been such a just a, such a fun ride for me. It's truly a gift from my garden and um, a gift of your friendship to uh, help me work through all of this. And now we're hearing about how well it's doing in people's gardens. So I just love that. I just want everyone to have mm -hmm. one. And if you do want one, just contact High Country Roses. They'll have them in the spring. <clears throat> they sold out this fall, which was wonderful. So, and if you're growing it, let me know how it's doing. I would love to hear from you. So such a, such a great fun project, but it's, it, you know, there are some details to work through and lots of things that you need yeah. to do and know. And, um, and, yeah. and the patent office is there to help you once you get the process started too. 
but you have to begin to think pattern. And so I had moments where I was doing my pattern work so I could, <laughs> I, I had to take myself back to school to learn pattern ease. And but it was great fun, great fun, a beautiful gift from the garden. Yeah, a person, well, one thing that inspires me for for every plant that um, is ready for a patent and to work through the, the writing of it is how, how much a person learns. I know I learn a ton every time as I look extra close to document the story of the plant. And, and I feel as, as, a, as a plant breeder here, um, you know, eventually I'm very grateful for every plant that a nursery does want to introduce. It, it doesn't make sense to go through a plant patent if you don't have a supply chain or anybody to introduce it. Um, is is how much I, I learn about and appreciate that plant. Um, so I, I feel like the plant patents that, that we write ourselves as people well connected with the plants versus paying a patent attorney and they deserve their their income for sure. Pay pay them a, a few a few thousand dollars at least for profit for them too is is what a great advocate that, that we are for our plants and we'll tell that story very completely as we look very close. <laughs> And document the fight oh, as well. And stories, you know, stories of the garden, stories of the plants. These are the things that just keep us going. We love them. We love them. Yeah. Oh. Well, I've, I've bent your ear today, but before I let you go, I know that all the rose lovers out there would appreciate hearing an update on your work in Black Spot Research. Yeah, it's really exciting. I'm, I'm, just thrilled to be at the point where we're at right now. It's a slow process. Um, as as the listeners know, as if anybody has heard us talk about Black Spot Research on previous programs, um, as we find uh, genes that, that lead to um, resistance to certain races or form of the fungus that leads to Black Spot, it's a slow, tedious process. And this winter, we're finally at the point of being able to test some what are called markers, little snippets of DNA that mm. are really tightly close to or actually within these these genes. So we're, we're going to confirm, validate these little snippets of DNA that could be tested for um, by, by breeders, uh, they could send stuff to us or work with a independent lab. So we'll, we'll, sh we'll share um, the parameters that are needed, the primers and such to, to easily test if a rose has a particular black spot resistance gene. It's kind of like uh, when we uh, may have got, gotten tested for, for COVID uh, with a PCR test. So we're at the point here of finding just the, the right segment of DNA and confirming um, that the best little snippet of DNA close to the gene that we can eventually share that information with the world so they could test their roses um, and know which roses have which black spot resistance genes. So then they could ultimately cross roses that have different forms of resistance to find those babies that combine multiple forms to um, hopefully lead to new varieties that have even greater resistance. Oh, how wonderful. Bravo, David. Well done. We appreciate all the time that you spend on this. It's going to benefit all of us for sure. Black spot is just something we just 
would love to eliminate. <laughs> yeah. We oh. would. So thank you so much. And David, whoa, you have taught us so much today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you do for the world of roses. And thanks for joining me today. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, I, I love listening to your show. And and um, so, so hopefully this inspires um, the audience members those listening to to appreciate uh, what what goes in behind the scenes for these these plant patents and how it helps spur on continued innovation to lead to even more beautiful roses for our gardens. Oh, absolutely, absolutely! And friends, thanks for joining us today. Now, this will be our final rose chat of twenty twenty three. Can you believe it? And in looking over the list, I see that we've chatted about rose history rose culture, new roses, rose care, rose trials, hybridizing, rose trends, and so much more. It's been a fun and educational year for me, for sure. And if you've missed any of those podcasts, they're easy to find. Just go to rosechatpodcast.com on your mobile device or your laptop or your desktop. And we already have a great lineup for 2024, so stay tuned. Until next time, have a wonderful holiday season. You've been listening to the Rose Chat Podcast with Chris Van Cleve and Teresa Byington, expert rose gardeners who want to help you achieve the rose garden of your dreams. Don't miss an episode. Listen anytime on our website at rosechatpodcast.com or listen on the go via the Rose Chat app on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Share this podcast with your social networks and join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using the hashtag RoseChat. Join us next time for another edition of the Rose Chat Podcast. The Rose Chat Podcast is a production of the Rose Chat Media Group, Birmingham, Alabama.